This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is Andy, the man behind the curtain, running the intro this week while Mike is out of the office. Today on the show, Josh is talking with Jacob Block, CEO of American Nitrile. Early on, Josh talks with Jacob about his early career in New York City, working with MLB teams like the Yankees on their social media marketing, and even working with Bernie Sanders on his 2016 campaign. I didn't have any job before I moved, but my dad was from New York and I knew I had always wanted to live there at some point in my life. Got there, I got linked up with a group that was putting together a marketing company and had some great clients, the Yankees being the first one. And it was at the time when the MLB, all the teams, whether it was the Indians or the Yankees, tweeted the same thing. It was a company called BAM that was a subsidiary of MLB. And the Yankees were sort of losing millennial engagement and they were picking up on that. And so they said, we're not going to trust the MLB to run our social handles anymore. We're going to take this in-house. And so they brought in consultants to scour the market and see whether it made sense to outsource it or in-house, but they knew they wanted to do it themselves. Then quickly, that team and I were up in New Hampshire for the primary of Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. There was a lot of excitement around that campaign to re-engage millennials and We were kind of explaining what we were doing for the Yankees at that time. A couple weeks later, they presented us with an opportunity to join a super PAC and worked alongside a a super PAC for the remainder of the election cycle. Later on, Jacob talks about the inspiration for American Nitrile and how he got started sourcing PPE early in the pandemic. Came to my parents' house just to sort of wait out whatever COVID was. That was when my network, both government and technology, who have really great networks into Asia, were calling on me for PPE. And not to sound corny, I I didn't even know the acronym when the pandemic started, but was fortunate to have good supply on one end and folks that needed it on the other and made some introductory calls and just was flabbergasted by what was happening. I've never made introductory calls where term sheets and contracts were flying. Um, And I was like, this is a really crazy opportunity. Let me see if I can partake rather than just make intros. And that was when I pulled some money together, bought as much PPE as we could from China, imported it, and then started brokering it to you know hospitals and states and retailers alike. I and mean, that was really the start of what now is American Nitrile, but the exit of the VC world. They wrap up the show talking about how American Nitrile went from a pandemic business to a sustainable, scalable idea that allowed Jacob and his team to raise $105 million in financing to build a local plant. At first, a lot of people think you're crazy. A lot of people were pretty dismissive saying COVID's going to end. This isn't a sustainable business model. And I would agree with them, except for the latter half, that it's not a sustainable business model. It was a billion conversations. And then you started seeing, you know, a couple people think that this could happen. And if you take a step back, if you look at the industry dynamics, the U.S. consumed, depending on what statistics you look at, either 25 or 40 percent of the global production on nitro gloves. And it produced less than one basis point of that. There was a small single former line in Alabama owned by a Japanese company, and they were producing you know, tens of thousands of gloves, not billions, let alone the billions that we use. The industry, it's just inevitable that it could be supported here. All the customers are here. This is a great interview, and I'm confident you all are gonna learn a lot. One last thing before we dive into the show. If you enjoy the episode, please hit that subscribe button. It really supports the show. It's free and you get to hear interviews like this every week with great entrepreneurs and leaders all across Columbus. All right, that's it from me. Let's get on with the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Conquering Columbus. Today, we have Jacob Block. Jacob is the CEO and founder of American Nitrile, a disposable glove manufacturer headquartered here in Columbus. 
Jacob founded the company in 2021 in an effort to combat the PPE shortage that hit the U.S. and the world due to the COVID pandemic. With the motto, Bring Manufacturing Back Home, Jacob and the team over at American Nitrile hope to create jobs for Columbus, while at the same time creating one of the greatest plants in the country. They recently raised $105 million in funding from Orion Infrastructure Capital and previously raised $35 million equity from local investors. Jacob is also a partner at First Avenue Capital and graduated from Ohio State University in 2015. Excited to have him on the show to talk about the company, what the goals are for the plant, how they plan on spending the new investment, and a whole lot more. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Jacob. Thanks for having me. Normally start talking back and just like childhood, where you grew up, milestones along the way. Are you from Columbus? I am. Yeah, I grew up in Bexley. On the east side, went to Bexley High School and went abroad my freshman year with a couple friends from high school to Israel and then came back to Ohio State, studied political science, and then moved to New York City for the last six years and wasn't sure when and how that was going to end, but the pandemic had its ideas of that and I came home, which I thought would be temporary and looks like I'm here for the long haul. So over in Israel, is that where your family like historically was from or why did you choose there? No, it didn't have much thought to it. A friend of mine was looking at colleges and came across this gap year where you do a year between high school and college. But this one, you got about a year worth and actually over a year worth of college credit. And basically, me and another friend heard about it and we thought it sounded cool. And we were from Columbus going to Ohio State. So different way to change it up, experience something outside of Columbus. And we thought together it would be fun and we were right, thankfully, and really had a great time there. And then came back to Ohio State, all three of us, and lived together. Nice. And then you end up in New York City after you graduate. I'm assuming you studied finance in undergrad? No, political science. Okay, that's a wild card. And so what are you doing in New York City? I moved there and had to figure it out. I didn't have any job before I moved, but my dad was from New York and I knew I had always wanted to live there at some point in my life. And got there, I got linked up with a group that was putting together a marketing company and had some great clients, the Yankees being the first one. And it was at the time when the MLB, all the teams, whether it was the Indians or the Yankees, tweeted the same thing. It was a company called BAM that was a subsidiary of MLB. And the Yankees were sort of losing millennial engagement and they were picking up on that. And so they said, we're not going to trust the MLB to run our social handles anymore. We're going to take this in-house. And so they brought in consultants to scour the market and see whether it made sense to outsource it or in-house, but they knew they wanted to do it themselves. That was part of the first gig. And then quickly, that team and I were up in New Hampshire for the primary of Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. It was early in the election cycle, clearly, and Bernie really kicked Hillary's butt in the primary, especially among millennial voters. There was a lot of excitement around that campaign to re-engage millennials and we were kind of explaining what we were doing for the Yankees at that time. And a couple of weeks later, emails were flying and they presented us with an opportunity to join a super PAC. And so we kind of morphed into that and worked alongside a, a super PAC for the remainder of the election cycle. I was mainly in New York, but spending a lot of time in D.C. and then at fundraising events throughout the country. And then when that ended, kind of not the way we had all planned, I went back to scrapping and what I was going to do next. And I had met a friend who ran a fairly large accounting company called Wiss Co. early on in college. And I called him. I was like, hey, do you have anything for me? I'm out of work. And he said, no, but, you know, we'll figure it out. Can you start Monday? And I said, sure. And that was the beginning of my three and a half year career at Wiss, which didn't really know what I was going to get into. I knew I was going to get a piece of all the accounting business I brought in, which was exciting. Everyone needed accounting, so I figured I could sell it. But really, looking back, it was more of an MBA program because I had an opportunity to meet a tremendous amount of founders and companies, mature and startups alike, 
you know, one thing about accounting, which was really unique, was you meet a lot of people, but if the first conversation goes well, the second conversation usually involves them sending you their tax return. So there's not a lot of BS in between that. And if there were, you can sort of siphon what was real, what wasn't, and see who's a genuine founder or, or person or re- a real company. And you start to pick up on patterns. And it really, you know, as I said, it was like an MBA program looking back and gave me the exposure to the other founders and companies to give me the confidence that I could do it myself. So you have this degree in political science, been working in politics for like three years. You know nothing really about accounting, like quote unquote, I mean, I'm sure you understood at a high level. Yeah, quasi accountant. So, and then you just jump in and he says, I have no idea. I must have thought highly of you as a person. I have no idea what you'll do, but I think if I bring you into the company, you'll be successful. Yeah, we've gotten to know each other over a couple of years and he's a pretty entrepreneurial accountant, which there aren't many, at least that I've met. And he knew that I would figure out a way to help the business, you know, and he gave me a chance. And I was really only in politics for a year. It was that election cycle beginning of 16 through November of 16. And then I was with him at the accounting firm for over three and a half years. And when you show up on day one, did you know, hey, I'm going to focus on sales and bring in a new business? Or were you just like, look, I don't know what else I can do. I might as well start trying to call people. Yeah, well, I knew I wasn't going to sign the tax returns. And an accounting firm, there was so many roles there, but sales were attractive to me. And, you know, we had negotiated a, a terms that were, I thought were very favorable for me to go out into my network and try to bring in accounting. And he had given me some tidbits and like fish hooks on how to sort of present accounting where a lot of the potholes are for companies and founders and high net worth individuals. And so using things like with tax credits and R&D tax credits and incentives that the government offers, as well as, you know, things that most accountants miss, whether you can save people money or amend their returns and get them back money. It's really an easy way in, but it's a very sticky relationship and it's a painful one to undo and get into a new one. So you really do have to add value right out of the gate. Otherwise, even if it's a mediocre solution, people just rather stick with it than, than go through, you know, finding that new accountant. So with his really leadership and, and him mentoring me in the space, picked up quickly on where most people have foot faults with, the, with their accountants and their finance departments and was able to use those to lure people in or at least get them interested enough to take a call. And then I would hand them off to the experts. And that was really my role there. I stayed in the relationship really just to make sure things were going well, but obviously handed it to the experts. It is such a black box too. Like I feel like I gamble like twice a year. One, if I randomly end up in like Las Vegas too, when I when I send in my taxes, I have a list of all the things that I think that I can write off. And then I get a call and he's like, you have food for your dog on here? I'm like, yeah, I don't know, man. I just threw it on there. Anything that I thought I could get, I threw at you. And then I just wait and see what the number comes back. And it's never a positive number. It's never like something I'm happy about. Nobody likes paying taxes, right? And at the end of the day, it's your tax department and personal taxes. It's a loser, right? It's, it's money out the door, no money in the door. So you try to limit that and save people where they can. And they're so complicated. I mean, the IRS tax code is however many thousands of pages. Like, even the best accountants don't know the whole code. So trying to find where people missed and mistakes that were made isn't that difficult because of how complex the tax system is. With entrepreneurs and founders, especially in tech, which is the sector I focused on, it's pretty routine, right? So you know what you can qualify as an R&D tax credit and what you can't you sort of present that right out of the gate is like, why didn't anyone do this? Or if you locate your office in this zone versus this zone, there's probably incentives that you can apply for or get back. Or if you hire folks that, you know, not all polished college degree, but 
you know, ex-felons or veterans or anyone with a record. There's uh, the, the work credit. I can't remember the exact acronym, but there's all these things that companies do and the government has for a lot of them programs that you can get back money. It's just being aware of that and then doing the legwork, which is usually tedious to get that and qualify for that. That's insightful in and of itself because I didn't know that it was thousands of pages long. And so I always just thought like any accountant's going to understand. And I have seen accountants specialize in, in startups versus tech versus real estate and all these different categories. So it definitely kind of reveals to me a lot more why that's such a uh, distinguished positioning to have. And so you're doing this and then all of a sudden you go all the way up until COVID? No. So that was still the end of 19. And what we did sort of in the back half of that, because we were finding a lot of companies that were having tremendous success. And as an accounting firm, you can only bill so much a year, an hour. And so within the firm, we set up a VC and we said, it's kind of like insider trading, but it's not illegal because these aren't public companies. We have all their books. We have their data. We can build technology and software to like do pattern recognition across all of these QuickBooks and whatnot. And we also had a handful of companies go from, you know, 10 million to over a billion in my tenure there and realized that we even invested a small amount of money, how much that would have been worth. And a lot of times when companies are getting started, cash is key and they're willing to trade and barter equity for services. And so we knew that that opportunity presented itself often. And so that was really what I championed was getting that, you know, through the partnership of the accounting firm that this could be a good ROI. They went for it. We had a handful of investments and what really came down to it, and this is getting into the weeds, but the way an LLP structure works, at least this one, there's 40 some odd equity partners at the firm. And the way retirement's calculated is based off of your last three years of income at the firm. So if you're nearing retirement, which a lot of these partners were, you have zero incentive to reinvest the fund's revenue back into the firm because you have no upside there. And it actually adversely affects you because you're not going to make the money that had they made a distribution you would have made throughout retirement. So every time we got to a point where it was time to cut a check, we dealt with this. It became very, I'll call it annoying, at least for me personally, because I thought these companies were great and we we were getting in on great terms and really early. And probably, were they all in Ohio or were they all over the no, country? No, this firm was in New York City. Oh, okay, um, got it. They're actually headquartered in Livingston, New Jersey, but they had a New York City office, which is where I worked out of. But we were meeting people from all over, but mainly, I would say, that Northeast region. Okay. And so, sorry, I interrupted your workflow there. You, you were saying that it was hard to get people to actually cut checks. And so how did you overcome Yeah, it was hard that? to get the firm to cut checks or be willing to take equity in lieu of cash for their service. So that was when I said, okay, it's time for me to go out on my own. In the past year or two prior to that, I had made a great network out in Silicon Valley of like-minded folks, similar age, that were doing like really big things, you know, their valuations that they, companies that they had founded were, you know, north of a hundred million. They had raised tremendous amounts of money or they were managing a tremendous amount of money. And I had not really been exposed to that kind of network before. When you get exposed to that, you realize the possibilities and then you're like, age is just a number. Like, why are you going to wait till you're older in life to try something or, or get involved in something or try to do it yourself? That was really what it was like, okay, it's time for me to do it. And so I went out on my own. And the other thing I sort of picked up from that network that I had met out there was the VCs that are the ones cutting checks are really the ones doing the selling because the competitive deals are very competitive and very tough to get checks into. You really need to bring value to either the founders or the fund managers, however you're investing. And so what I thought I could do and what previous folks had done in the past with 
older generations was sort of become the government liaison or the government guy in tech. And so we sort of tried to carve out a, a niche where we built a fund at the crossroads of technology, politics, and government. And then what that meant was we were able to go to fund managers and founders and say, listen, you know, there's all these different possibilities for your company within government, state and local, but also federal. And that was where we focused. And an example of that would be tax incentives or grants that are available out of the Air Force or BARDA or any other agency. There was also a lot of regulation that could come down the pike, either for or against that company. Usually tech is disrupting an entrenched industry, and that usually comes with regulation at some point. And then the other thing was the government is a recession-proof five-plus trillion dollar entity every year that you probably should figure out a way to make them your customer and how to sell into it. So those were the sort of selling points of, of the fund and how we tried to position it. And that was getting going, and we were building the coalition that brought a lot of these guys to and gals to D.C. to meet Congress, to meet folks at the White House, people involved in tech, and really show them sort of how how that works and how really accessible these folks are, especially if you're a successful founder and these politicians think you can cut checks. They're very open-door policy. And that was really the start of it. And then the pandemic happened. And you and were still with the accounting firm at this time. No, so you, I had left. This was like the— okay four or five months in between. And you're doing all this on your own, or do you have a partner at that point? There were a couple people pitching and helping out. Build a fund, it takes a huge network. So I, it was never really like something that got a ton of traction because it was only a number of months that we were at it before the pandemic happened, but it was my own effort to, to get that going. Our sponsor is Waveform Music Group. Andy and Carlin have been working with us to take the production of Conquering Columbus to the next level, and Josh and I cannot be happier with the results. Outside of podcast production, Andy and Carlin are experts in songwriting, music production, and sonic branding for companies of all sizes. And to learn more about them, head to their website, createwaveforms.com. That is createwaveforms.com, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. You built the network out in Silicon Valley through doing your VC efforts, that like kind of entrepreneurial initiative that you took inside of the accounting firm. And then you took those relationships, you branched on your own for four or five months. You said, hey, I'm going to create my own fund. I'm going to bring in these LPs and my niche with my fund is going to be taking the political knowledge and, and government connections that I have and connecting those with the Silicon Valley startup ecosystem. Exactly. Yeah, that was the thesis at least. And it was working. I mean, to an extent, LPs were super interested. I also thought there was an opportunity to bring, you know, really exclusive deal flow to Midwestern LPs that really have no access or even in some cases in New York LPs that just don't have the access or the deal flow. These deals in Silicon Valley, and I think it was perpetuated throughout the pandemic, but the windows that they raise in are really small. You know, it's a couple of weeks, months, and they don't really allow for much diligence because they don't need to. And the investors are sort of at their door knocking, asking for permission to invest. And so you got to be able to act swiftly and quickly. And it's all about having the relationships to get the access. And so that was sort of my thesis is I tapped into that network and I knew I could open those doors to other investors for deals that they had heard of that are you know, blue chip public companies that these guys had invested in early and say, look, the next one or the next few could be, uh, you know, an opportunity. Let's do this. So that was sort of the logic behind it. And then COVID hits. And does it all shut down at that point? I wouldn't say it shut down at all. But when COVID started in early March, I was in Europe for a wedding and the president was coming on, like threatening to shut down the border. So I, I packed up, came home, back to New York City. New York City, I love it. 
not a great place during a pandemic with subways and public transportation and just walking down the street, how many people you pass. So I packed a overnight bag, got on a plane to Columbus the next day, came to my parents' house just to sort of wait out whatever COVID was. That was when my network, both government and technology, who have really great networks into Asia, were calling on me for PPE. And not to sound corny, I, I didn't even know the acronym when the pandemic started, but was fortunate to have good supply on one end and folks that needed it on the other and made some introductory calls and just was flabbergasted by what was happening. I've never made introductory calls where term sheets and contracts were flying. Um, and I was like, this is a really crazy opportunity. Let me see if I can partake rather than just make intros. And that was when I pulled some money together, bought as much PPE as we could from China, imported it, and then started brokering it to you know hospitals and states and retailers alike. I mean, that was really the start of what now is American Nitrile, but the exit of the VC world. And so the beginning of it, when you're brokering those relationships, so the, the government employees had access to the PPE, and then obviously the companies that were calling on you were looking for it? No, so they knew that this was sort of looming. I think they had sort of had a tip sometime in February before the rest of the world. And I don't know if you remember, but Fauci was like actually telling people not to wear masks. And that was later found out because they didn't want the public like grabbing all these masks. They wanted it to end up in the healthcare setting. So the states and other entities had gotten smart to that. And they were all sort of trying to grab as much inventory as they could because they didn't know when this was going to end. They didn't know how severe this was, but the whole world all of a sudden wanted this product and the supply chains they don't respond that quickly, right? So they were at a breaking point. And so I was able, through my tech relationships that went to Stanford and, you know, their college roommate had, his father had a mask factory in China, was able to find those. And then through my government relationships was able to find people that wanted them. And that was how the brokering all came to be. And to fast forward a little bit. So taking the approach that we did doesn't sound novel at all, but in the heat of the pandemic, when nobody could get this inventory, it was slightly because we didn't require POs or LOIs or deposits or any sort of committal or risky nature to the deal. We would say, we'll deliver the product, gowns, masks, gloves, whatever, after you've had a chance to inspect it on your dock doors, then pay us. And so who wouldn't say, yes, like if I need that product, that's a great deal for me. I have no risk. So we spread really quickly. We got into you know some of the biggest retailers in the world. The peak of that was you know, March to August of 2020. But somewhere in between, you know, I started thinking, how could America, the largest, most successful country known to mankind, be so reliant on Asia for such a simple product, right? Like, how, do we not make anything anymore? Is we, we, have we given all of this manufacturing capability away and have no way to quickly, re, you know, rebuild it? And I looked at all the products that we had been selling, mainly masks and gowns, and just due to the nature of that product, quickly ruled them out of being a possibility to manufacture profitably and sustainably in the U.S., mainly because that's a woven material and you could convert this conference room we're sitting in right now to produce you know, masks and gowns. You just need scissors and sewing equipment. And so we knew that this was a bubble. Eventually, the supply chain was going to stabilize and things were going to go back to the way they were. But when we got to gloves... It was a little bit different because the barrier to entry for gloves is incredibly high. It's sort of a monopoly-esque product. There's a few families in Malaysia that control the majority of the world's supply. The raw material, the feedstock, is called NBR, nitrile butadiene rubber, for short. 
that was really only used in gloves. So when the pandemic happened and everyone needed gloves, there wasn't more raw material that you could pull from. You can pull it out of you know other products to vert to gloves. And so all of these things you know came together as a really hard market to enter, very expensive. And we thought with the level of automation already in existence, but with what we plan to do, we could produce this product at cost parity to what they do in Asia. We had some very expensive consultants sort of weigh in on the industry pre-pandemic and say, yeah, I mean, if you can do it, implement all this automation you're planning and do all these things you're saying you can do, yeah, this works. This is what gloves sold for pre-pandemic. This is what we're anticipating the demand following the pandemic. You know, the industry macroeconomics were really in our favor. Back in the 90s, when gloves really became a thing out of the AIDS pandemic, it was really a natural latex that everyone used. And that was when all the manufacturing started to leave the U.S. A lot of it was in Ohio, where the rubber capital of the world, and go over to Malaysia and Southeast Asia generally. And that was really one labor. But two, the rubber trees are in that region of the world. And then the whole latex allergy started to become a thing. And one in 10-ish people have a latex allergy, something like that. And if you're a dentist, those aren't great odds. And if the glove isn't manufactured correctly, that protein can cause an allergic reaction. So the industry started mainly because of marketing, pivoting away from natural latex into nitrile, which is this petroleum, you know, at its most raw form, into synthetic, which is the NBR. And that was another reason why we felt that we could now make it here at the same price you can make it in Asia, because it's petroleum, so you can get it from anywhere around the world for the same price. No, this is awesome. I like the macroeconomic pieces of this too. So from a raw material standpoint, it made sense, at least it could make sense, to manufacture here in the U.S. And so then you just have to compete from a labor standpoint. And with the automation, you felt that you could remove the labor component? Not completely. Reduce, minimize. Correct. Massive barriers to entry from a capital expenditure standpoint. And so you thought because of the demand right now and the prices of these, we could take on the capital expenditure, make it make economic sense. And then even when things went back to normal, because the automation, everything, we could continue to press forward. Correct. Yeah. And I would just add to that nitrile prior to the pandemic had been growing between six and 10% a year, year over year, CAGR, and analysts had projected it to do so through the 2020s. So if you looked at the market share and what the U.S. consumed Pre-pandemic, it was around 150 billion single gloves a year. And if you think about what that you know means every 6% a year, it starts to grow vastly. And the industry was actually undergoing expansion projects in Malaysia and China and Vietnam. We knew based off of even the scale we're trying to bring, which is 3.6 billion pieces to the market, we're still a, a few percentage points of the overall U.S. consumption. And that was pre-pandemic. So our theory was if we could make the glove as good or better quality— at a comparable price, and we show a customer a box from Asia or a box from the U.S., we're going to win that battle 10 out of 10 times. And that was when you know we said, this is a great opportunity, and we went for it. And when you say we, who all is involved with you when you're working through these things? I mean, because these concepts, like noticing them as one piece, but then thinking I can disrupt to some small extent an industry that's been doing things the way for years. Like, how do you work through that? Are you doing yeah. it alone? At first, yeah. I mean, a lot of people think you're crazy. A lot of people were pretty dismissive saying, you know, COVID's going to end. This isn't a sustainable business model. And I would agree with them, except for the latter half, that it's not a sustainable business model. It was a billion conversations. And then you started seeing, you know, a couple people think that this could happen. And if you take a step back and forget the pandemic for one minute, 
If you look at the industry dynamics, the U.S. consumed, depending on what statistics you look at, either 25 or 40 percent of the global production on nitro gloves, and it produced less than one basis point of that. There was a small single former line in Alabama owned by a Japanese company, and they were producing you know, tens of thousands of gloves, not billions, let alone the billions that we use. If you just think about that from that perspective, the industry, it's just inevitable that it could be supported here. All the customers are here. With the logistical nightmares that are taking place today, it even reinforces our point even stronger because you can eliminate the customer's you know, need for that complex 120, 150-day supply chain of procuring products out of Asia. We can offer just-in-time delivery. We can deliver products to NEDC around the country in a couple-day drive from Columbus. We could deliver it in pallet cases, shrink-wrapped, and they could just go right on the racking. If you think about what it looks like coming from Asia, only a handful of the, the nitrile buyers have Asian sourcing departments. And that takes a lot of expense and time to manage and whatnot. Even if you have that, you got to get the product from the factory to the port, got to get a container, got to put it on a vessel, usually goes to a mothership, usually Singapore, got to come to the United States, offloaded, comes in containers. So you got to take the container, you got to break it up, you got to palletize it, then you got to drive it throughout the country to your DCs. And that process takes, you know, 120 days at least. And that's a lot of capital you got to lay out to get that product there before it hits your shelf. And it makes managing your inventory incredibly difficult with, you know, ebbs and flows. You're planning months out. Where we come to the market, we alleviate all of that, right? You could tell us when and where you want it, number of days. You don't need to deal with any of ports and customs and clearing customs. It's become a big to-do now in Malaysia. One thing they've had to do to remain competitive is work with immigrant labor, mainly out of Bangladesh and Nepal. And the way that they get these immigrants into these glove factories is through a systematic process of debt bondage. So these poor Bangladeshis and Nepal citizens sell their farms. They pay these recruiter fees, you know, five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars. They get placed in these glove factories. They're working twelve-hour shifts, six, seven days a week. Really, not great conditions either. These factories are really hot and. You know, the U.S. has gotten wise to this and put a ton of these factories on uh, what's called work release order, WROs, and they've blocked imports. So it's either three or four of the top 10 glove factories in the world can't even import gloves into the U.S. right now because of forced labor that were found in their factories. So if you're, you know, a major glove importer or distributor in the U.S., think, you know, Medline, Cardinal Health, Owens & Minor, Henry Schein, the last thing you want to deal with is a forced labor issue coming out of Malaysia and your products not being able to be imported. And so we pay very high wages and, and, and great benefits and have great working conditions and can alleviate our customers' worry on all of that. Hey, everybody. Mike here. We're going to take a quick break to talk about one of our sponsors, One Columbus. And we are very excited to partner with One Columbus. They really, really share the same vision as us here at the Conquering Columbus podcast, which is really building up the Columbus region to be one of the most prosperous regions in the United States. And One Columbus serves as the business location resource for companies across central Ohio and around the world as those companies grow, innovate, and compete within the global economy. And they help us lead a regional growth strategy that develops and attracts the world's most competitive companies, it grows a highly adaptive workforce, and prepares our communities for the future, inspiring innovation across the board. Their mission really is just ensuring the Columbus region is a vibrant place to build businesses and careers. So again, we really appreciate all of their support. You want to learn more about them, go check out their website, columbusregion.com. That's columbusregion.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll be right back into the episode. 
So it almost seems like with all the attributes you're talking about, like even if you match the operational techniques and styles overseas step by step over here with the same number of people and you took the hit of the increased labor, it would almost still, I got to imagine, make more sense to do it here at this point because of the raw material sourcing and logistics nightmare, the working condition regulations and all the stuff that you're trying to overcome. I'm obviously biased, but agree 100% with that statement. It's a commoditized product. So acute settings, hospitals are really conscious to the bottom line, and they're really price-driven. So as much as the corporate social responsibility aspect of this matters and environmental aspect, we haven't talked about it, but we will be the greenest glove factory on the planet. We're recycling over half our water. We eliminated the need for trans-Pacific vessels to get the gloves here. 3% of global emissions come from shipping lanes and, and cargo ships. So that's a big difference there. And we're using recycled cardboard on our boxes. We're looking at solar. We think a lot of the opportunity and innovation in the space is even further innovating the lines to use less utility that, that they already are. And so those are the things that we present to customers. But, you know, in the acute setting, which is about 40% of the nitrile market, the other 60% is government, industrial, food and beverage. You know, those folks are incredibly price sensitive. They buy through GPOs, IDNs. And so even if we don't end up in that uh, setting, it's okay, because it's not even half the market. And we'll focus on the folks that you know, are a little bit more fragmented buyers and are willing to pay a little bit of a premium or frankly, not even a huge premium. They could pay the exact same price if we can circumvent the distributor in some cases. Initially, until we get to scale, we're going to ask for a little bit more than you could buy FOB from Asia. There's only, I would say, two or three dozen companies that buy the majority of gloves. You know, it's all the acute distributors, the big industrial distributors, and then they're reselling it to B-tier and C-tier distributors, and then they're reselling it to end users. So the end user has always paid a price well in excess of what we're planning to sell it for. And so if we can get to those folks, that's going to be a great place for us to be. We'll save them money. You know, we'll make more money. But even if we have to sell through distribution, which we are planning to do, there's still enough for everybody. Yeah, so you kind of got this multifaceted go-to-market strategy that will cover you in a couple different angles. You have this profound insight, and there's two components of it I'm still really curious about. One, how you went about in kind of the granular detail of raising the capital and making the pitch. And two, how you're able to come to such a comprehensive business plan. It's like you mentioned before we started the interview, you made this pitch so much. It's almost like you forget pieces that you say and don't say. And you clearly are very smart on the topic and just in general. So you like putting those macroeconomic pieces, it always seems so simple once somebody's got it all figured out. But macroeconomics in general is like, it's extremely complicated with all the moving parts. Hearing you describe it, you're like, of course, that makes tons of sense. But it couldn't have been super easy to do all that in the beginning. So did you know all that or did you continue to refine your pitch as you went through and got feedback and further and further and further? For sure. The pitch was always evolving and is always evolving, right? Like with the market of today and where the supply chain, we weren't really pounding on supply chain when we started this because it wasn't such an issue as it is today. It's funny because when we went out, I went to friends and family first, got enough support to say, okay, yeah, I think we can get there, but we, we needed much more. We would pitch folks through friends of friends or, or folks I had known or my team had known. They'd say, eh, COVID's going to end. This isn't going to work. And then, you know, four or five weeks later, they'd call us and say, you know, I never even thought about a nitro glove. But since you brought it up, I went and got a COVID shot. The nurse went through two pairs. I went to my dentist. They went through a few pairs. Then I went to my doctor's office. The nurse came in, wore a pair. She left. The doctor came in. He wore a pair. He left. And then the nurse came back in, put another pair on. They, so like in the last month, myself have gone through a box of gloves. And they were like, all right, I want in. And we were like, perfect. This works out well. So we were really opening up people's eyes. And 
at the time when we had started this, which I would say roughly was like July 2020 was when the idea came about, the prices on these nitro gloves was through the roof. I mean, in some cases, people were paying 10, 20 times what they normally had been paying if they could even get them because even dentists were getting all of their PPE taken because acute settings, hospitals may need them. And so they weren't able to buy it. Their suppliers weren't able to sell it. And so not only the frustration of not even having it, but when they could get an opportunity to buy it, the prices were through the roof. And so at the time when we had started, we were sort of pitching that and we were underwriting you know, a very, very conservative sale price, but it was still above pre-pandemic levels. And so the numbers always penciled out. And as we've gotten further and further away from the pandemic, pricing has gotten more and more stabilized. Shipping has, you know, kept pricing up. Raw material oil prices have kept the prices high. And people bought tremendous amounts of stock during the pandemic because they had no idea when they were going to be able to re-up. So they just stocked their shelves with it. And now they're trying to burn through that inventory before they go back to the market because a lot of them say, through hell or high water, I'm going to use this inventory I overpaid for during the pandemic. So, I mean, back to the investors, it was you know, folks that had medical backgrounds that were interested, uh, manufacturing backgrounds. Funny enough, a handful of our investors are in the real estate sector. And it was just, you know, people believing in the team, the startup, you know, a deck and an Excel and a smile. You know, there's there's not much to diligence. There's not much to go off. It's, yeah, the idea sounds good. And two, I think the management team has an ability to execute against their plan. So, you know, now's a good opportunity. If you can afford to lose the investment, it's a good investment. If you can't, then don't invest. And we got enough traction. We had a big backer early. The way we were able to work with all of our vendors and suppliers, our OEM, we sort of, you know, negotiated payment terms that were very favorable for us, a little upfront, and then the rest throughout the, the tenure of the relationship or on the back end. And we were able to make a little bit of capital, which it's all relative. $35 million is not a little bit of capital, but when you're building a factory our size, which is about upwards of $175 million, it's not enough. So we were very strategic on how we spent those dollars to get enough of the momentum rolling downhill so that when we did need to go bring on a, a bigger investor, there was a lot more there and it wouldn't be such a moonshot. And so that was really the thinking to going out and into the market and then sort of how we were able to position the company. And you, know, you always want to look bigger than you are as a startup. And so how you spend your dollars really matter. So it was about bringing on people early on that had deeper pockets, you know, should you need to dig back into those. You mentioned that large kind of anchor invest in the beginning that helped. Was that someone that you had met through Ohio, Columbus relationships? Was it your your Silicon Valley situation? Yeah, I was a Silicon Valley investor. They bet on people, not projects, is their motto. And he had a lot of faith in myself and he was very instrumental in actually the team I initially put together. And he had faith in the management team and see if you can rally up enough support. But of course, I'm there for you if you need. And so, you know, we were able to validate it with the market of investors that enough people thought this was a good idea and this could work. And then he came through and, you know, basically put in a third of what we raised in equity. And yeah, I mean, that was sort of the way we got off the ground. And then from a debt standpoint, you raised a pretty significant amount of debt. And at that point, where did you start to go? Did you bring all the capital into the POs? That's where I was going to go with that question. From yep. the purchase order side, you mentioned you were able to raise the debt because of all those POs. So did you just start selling at the same time? Yeah. I mean, throughout the process, you know, any buyer of nitro gloves that we could get in touch with, we did. And we wanted to understand their business, how they thought about it. If they had a U.S.-made strategy, there were a lot of uh, hospital boards that were saying to their procurement departments, hey, we need a pandemic preparedness strategy. This can't happen again. We can't be in this position again. 
And so procurement officers were left to, you know, develop U.S.-made strategies, but also not make their cost structure go out of whack. We found the folks that had those strategies baked, and they said, we're going to procure 10, 20, 30 percent of our PPE domestically, just out of abundance of caution of this happening again. We're still going to procure some out of Asia for cost purposes, but here's our plan and here's how we're going to do it. So you're great. You know, we want to work with you. No deposit, nothing. Just write us a non-binding LOI stating your intent. And so we were able to muster up enough of those early on. And then as we got going, I mean, if you know, the factory started, we had the building, we started the infrastructure build, we had our equipment on order, some of it had started to ship, the team was starting to shape out. And then we would say to customers, okay, thank you for your LOI. Now it's not tech. We can't build this product once and sell it a million times. We have a finite number of gloves that we have to sell. If you want these, you got to commit and give us a PO. And so a lot of folks were wavering and some folks came through. And so when we went to lenders, we fortunately had enough of those binding POs that the lender was willing to underwrite them and say, okay, you have the sales side worked out. Now the only risk in the deal is the execution side. And they did months and months and months. We had actually met the uh, lender 10 months prior to closing the deal of diligence. Not all of it was like intense, but you know they got to know us. They got to know the team. Early on, we told them we were going to do things throughout those 10 months. We did them. So we built trust. They came to the factory several times. They brought their team. No more diligence done in the world than what a lender does. And I thought as a VC, I knew how to do diligence. And then I experienced it from a lender really intensely and realized how little rocks I uncover in an investment. So it was an agonizing process, but it made us a better company. It made us tougher, it made us stronger, it made us dot our I's and cross our T's. And clearly it worked out in the end and they were long on the company and they took a, a very small equity position and gave us some money in debt. And then how many people in that founding team? Yeah, so it was myself and um, Casey Hall were the first two. And then we had picked up some consultants along the way quasi-CFO. And then the next two hires were Andy and Zach, which were our CFO and general counsel. And then that was really the core team. And then we really didn't make another hire until we were fully funded on the capital side. Let me take that back. On the first tranche of equity we raised, it was the founding team. And then we had picked up some other really big key pieces because none of us had ever worked in a factory before and none of us had ever made a glove before. We knew the glaring holes in the management team were that expertise, and this is not an easy product to manufacture. It's a hybrid of advanced, high-moving, very high-output machinery and chemistry. And so there's a very small subset of people that actually have that knowledge, which goes back to the barrier entry to the industry. And all the legacy talent in the U.S. that at one point had made these is really old, frankly, and they are not up to date on the latest technology. So we, through our network, were able to get linked up with actually an American gentleman that had grown up in the glove industry out of the AIDS pandemic. He was looking to move back to the U.S. He was in charge of one of the largest glove manufacturers in the world, overseeing all their manufacturing in Asia. And we offered him a position, and thank God he took it. And then that was really a, a big piece. And we also hired some top-notch manufacturing talent that had built and run factories for Toro and Rainbird and GE, we really, I would say, overcompensated on the fact that none of us had that experience, build out that team. And then along the way, we've got an amazing world-class team, folks that have come out of the industry for 20, 30 years, former customers or current customers, companies, as well as just top, top engineering talent that have built 
very complex water treatment systems and everything that is in our facility. These guys have been there and done that. And it's really what, you know, propels us today to, to the point where we're at. So what are the goals for the future? Well, the near-term goals are to complete construction. We're about 70% of the way there. We're going to start production this summer. And then, you know, we're going to have to hire the vast majority of our employees, hundreds of employees to work the facility. Those are the two things that we need to execute on for sure. And then obviously on the sales side, we need to deliver. We need to really satisfy our customers. There's been a handful of folks that have tried to do this and failed miserably. They didn't invest. They took a approach to get to market as soon as possible because of the bubble and the pricing during the pandemic and didn't think about the industry beyond the pandemic and where they would need to compete. What were some of those areas? I'm just curious. These lines are massive. It's really hard to describe how big these lines are. They're three stories high, 850 feet long each, right? They've got 22 ovens along the line. The chain that runs throughout is over a mile long. There's 36,000 formers, which are the hand-shaped molds that go in through the latex tanks and throughout the ovens. To build these, you got to have an incredible team of people that know how to do this and know the latest technology. The line builders aren't actually the ones that have the best technology. As I mentioned, this industry is controlled by a handful of families in Malaysia, and all the innovation has come out of those manufacturers. So they don't hire third-party companies to build their lines, they build them in-house. So if you want the top technology available in the industry, you had to find people that have come out of those manufacturing facilities, because those are the people that have figured it out. And that's what we did, and a lot of people in the U.S. had just bought off-the-shelf Alibaba, you know, Chinese lines, and they were never suited to make gloves competitively ever, even in Asia, but especially in the U.S. where, you know, labor is where they are. And these buildings ideally are 60 feet high. There aren't a lot of 60 foot high vacant warehouses in the U.S. And so we've heard stories of people having too much condensation on their roof and it raining in the factory and others just getting latex that they don't know what to do with it. I mean, we've heard a tremendous amount of horror stories in this space. And, you know, if you didn't have the expertise, I'm sure we'd be fumbling over ourselves, same as everyone else. If you would have told me to bet my life if I could make a glove at home before this interview, I would have taken that bet every day. <laughs> Give me one person's hand and I could get you a glove in about sure. 30 minutes. So that's crazy to think that that much yeah. goes into it. They say the simpler the product, the more difficult the manufacturing, the more complex the product, the simpler the manufacturing. And it's that certainly makes zero true. sense though. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you think about like what a Tesla car has to go through to be manufactured, each single station isn't that complex but in entirety is extraordinarily complex. And for us, you know, we're making one glove start to finish in less than an hour, and it goes from a liquid latex to a solid glove. It's quick. Yeah, and just the amount of years compounding over time the lessons learned on how to do it and optimize, and I can imagine that builds on top of itself. Man, that's awesome. I mean, what you guys have done in such a short period of time and to take such a large vision and actually turn it into reality is so many people would sit on a couch and come up with this idea and just... Not that they don't want to implement it, but it's daunting. And how do you do it? And you were able to pull it off. So it's very cool to see. Yeah. I think being naive was a huge asset at the time. If somebody had printed out a list of all the challenges that we were going to face and run into while building this factory, I probably would have done what you just described. But not knowing what I was getting myself into, I just had a blind confidence that we could do it. And thankfully, we went for it. Final question we always wrap up with the show is centered around the theme and that's live uncomfortably. Probably describes the last 12 months of your life. But when you hear it, how does it apply to your life and your career? And what do you think of when you uh, hear the phrase? I mean, that's every day. 
living uncomfortably. To me, it means just putting yourself in a position to fail. And, you know, that scares some people. People don't want to make mistakes and fail, nor do I. But if you don't put yourself in that position, you're never going to grow. And that's where, you know, growing pains, literally a phrase comes from. It's, you know, putting yourself in positions to learn and grow. And a lot of times it doesn't work out, but you at least gave yourself an opportunity and you wouldn't have known otherwise. You know, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take, right? So for me, it's just the only way I'd have it, frankly. I mean, you know, I love waking up not knowing what the day is going to entail. I know there's going to be a slew of challenges, but that's what excites me. That's what, you know, we built the team for. The only guarantee is that nothing's going to go right. And so you build the team for problems and you test your team when things are difficult. And we have an amazing team, world-class talent that I'm really proud of. I think it's the best thing we've done to date is build this team and a problem come up and that's just another day. There's no panic, there's no calling and there's no drama. I mean, it's just, let's get the problem solved and let's move on. But that's what it means to me. Yeah, it's great. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Jacob, and uh, good luck on everything moving forward. Thanks for having me.